Hi, welcome to War Christ. Today I'm joined by Mark Clavier. Mark is an American living in Wales where he serves as residential canon of Breaking Cathedral. He's a regular contributor to BBC Radio Wales and is the director of Convivium, an initiative to connect faith with local environments, heritage and communities. His latest book is A Pilgrimage of Paradoxes, A Backpacker's Encounters with God and Nature. It's a theological ref reflection on his many walks in Wales. And you can also read his insightful essays in places online, such as the Frankfurt Republic. And um, just to begin today then, Mark, what first prompted your interest in theology, even agrarian thinking and ways of life and some other sort of central concerns that we see in your work? Oh, well, that's a long story, but <laughs> I'll try and tell briefly. The first of all, theology. Um, I, I was raised very much in the church. Uh, and, um, but, but like most people, uh, you know, I went to Sunday school, I was, I was catechized, confirmed everything else. Um, but it wasn't the sort of thing that would lead to, to deep theological ruminations. Um, and in some ways it's, it's, it's a, it's a very common story in university. Uh, I found my faith challenged. It was the first time I was away from a church going family and, and it being university, it was it was easy not going to church. Uh, and I began to ask questions. And, uh, and so I fortunately turned at that time to CS Lewis. Um, it mustn't have been much of a, of a of a trial of faith, because all it took was reading mere Christianity. And I was I was fine. Um, I, I just had to get over that little kind of uh, um, hiccup. Um, but but then, as I I was studying medieval history as a as an undergrad, um, and in my final year, I was beginning to sense a, a call to to ministry. Um, my father was I still is uh, in retirement a bishop, um, and and I always swore I would I wouldn't go into the ministry. Um, but the call came upon me in my, my final year of university and being of a cerebral bent that, that led me to really begin to delve into theology. Um, and it was at that time I encountered someone not as well known as he ought to be, especially among Anglicans, a man named Michael Ramsey, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury during the, the 60s. And Ramsey's book, The Gospel in the Catholic Church, was the first time I chewed on what then I would have called more advanced theology. Um, and, and it opened up a whole world to me that I found thrilling. Uh, and, uh, and then that led me to dive into the patristics uh, and when I went off to uh, Duke University to prepare for the ministry, uh, I also discovered some of the early Anglican theologians, especially a man named uh, Lancelot Andrews. Uh, and all these people, as I delved into their, their writings, they, they introduced me to a whole new world that I was dimly aware was, was there because I'd been a churchgoer. But they were raising the kinds of questions that I hadn't even thought to ask. Um, but then when I came across them, thought these are the questions that needed to be asked, but, but in some ways, even more importantly, um, and I, you know, I grew up a big fan of Tolkien and Middle Earth and everything. To me, reading their books, this is more C.S. Lewis uh, in Narnia, was like entering through the wardrobe into a whole world where the, the air was, was, was cleaner. Um, and in many ways, 
I think I've been, I'm more of a imaginative theologian than an intellectual theologian. Um, and, it, and it is the way that theology resonates with my imagination that's, that's been one of the wellsprings of, of my life. Um, but at the same time, I, I grew up camping. Uh, I grew up fairly outdoorsy. Um, and uh, or it's not much in nature because I grew up in South Florida where you, you have to search long and hard to find nature unless it's the ocean. Um, and, um, but then as a young adult, uh, as a priest in um, Western North Carolina in the Appalachian Mountains, uh, I took a walk there one autumn in, in the mountains and was just overwhelmed by delight with the mountains stretching all around me, uh, you know, panorama from the top of what's called Ivester Gap. And that, that awoken me a, a fascination with, with the whole concept of delight. What does it mean to delight? What does it, what does it mean to enjoy something for its own sake without any expectation, without any control, without being able to make demands? What does it mean to, to delight. Um, and, uh, and that initially led me uh, to, uh, strangely enough, because I had never really had any interest in them, the medieval mystics. Um, you read Anselm, you read Bonaventure, you read Julian of Norwich, and the word delight just appears constantly in their writings. And then ultimately to Augustine, that I would go on to spend three years doing my, my doctorate on Augustine's notions of, um, of delight. And then it wasn't until a little bit later, really once after I'd moved to Wales uh, and soaked myself in the Welsh landscape, which is, is at once a beautiful landscape, a historical landscape and a sacred landscape that I, I really, it really began to connect my love of theology and my, my love of the outdoors and the beauty of nature uh, and a key person who enabled me as a kind of conversational partner to bring those two together um, was, was first of all Augustine, but then because I eventually have to get to the 20th and 21st century, um, uh, Wendell Berry, um, who is a um, not, it's not well known on this side of the Atlantic, mm. um, but is a huge figure in American agrarian thought, conservation thought, uh, and 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 his writings really allowed me finally. It almost feels felt like a consummation to connect all the dots, uh, and that's been in some ways where I've been stuck ever since. It's a good place to be stuck. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, not bad at all. <laughs> no, I echo the sentiment to Wendell Berry. should definitely be much better known over here and God willing, the likes of your work will help us to do so. And as we mentioned before, we came online with Paul Kingsnorth putting our day references to Wendell. Hopefully that will be a, an incentive. To yeah, and then the, the James Rebanks um, and his, his writing, which has been hugely popular. He's been deeply influenced by Wonderberry as well. So that's someone else who's beginning to make him better known. Fantastic. And then I want to ask you next, Mark, if I may, um, 
what is it about, say, St. Augustine or even Wendell Berry, if you want to go in that direction, that speaks to you so much then, building upon what you've just said? And uh, what are some of maybe the surprising elements that uh, figures like St. Augustine offer uh, in contrast, I suppose, to this notion that he was somehow dour and the root of all evil for the Western church and stuff like that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Augustine, probably the best way to start, because, you know, the popular notion of Augustine is this very dour man who, who thought sex was, was, was terrible and, and, and that everybody's a massive, is, is just caught in a massive sin. Uh, and they're not entirely wrong, but um, <laughs> um, it, it was interesting. I, I went to Augustine kicking and screaming, largely because I had accepted the popular notion of Augustine, uh, probably I, I'm more of a semi-Pelagian than I would care to admit. Um, uh, and uh, but but as I was exploring, so when I went to Durham to do my doctorate, my intention was to do the medieval mystics and their take on delight. But it quickly became clear that you can't do medieval mysticism without starting with Augustine. And the problem with starting with Augustine is you often never escape Augustine. Uh, the man just wrote so much. Uh, I used to tell my, my New Testament scholar friends that they've got it easy. Um, uh, but, but I got stuck in Augustine, not because he just wrote so much, but, but because I discovered in him this just incredibly high notion of delight that I had not encountered anywhere else. Um, I mean, for Augustine, uh, God creates everything because he delights in it. Um, that, that all of creation is suffused with and interwoven by God's delight only exists in so far as God delights in it. Uh, and that means not only, you know, the creation out there that but that also means each and every one of us and then his notion of why we fell into sin was also rooted in delight it was because uh you know eve she looks at the the fruit and it's she's not convinced intellectually to eat it she looks on it and she delights in it and 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 then eats it and and and, and adam as, as well and he and he and he develops this whole notion of sin that that um you know, uh, a temptation suggests something that we shouldn't do to us. And that alone is not sufficient for us to commit the sin. It's not, sin is not primarily an intellectual activity. It's when that notion appears to us and we delight in it, that we, we then consent to commit that sin. And then he almost has this, this modern sense of like addiction to sin, because once we've tasted that delight, we yearn for it again, but when we taste it the next time, it's not quite as powerful as the first time. That's the law of diminishing return. Mm -hmm. um, and then, and then there is this notion that if we fell by um, by delighting in the wrong things, God saves us by enabling us uh, to delight in the right things. And He puts a lot of emphasis on Romans five five. Um, where, where it talks about God, the Holy Spirit being poured out in, into our hearts um, or God's love being poured into our hearts by the reception of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that, that triggered something in uh, a 
Augustine's rhetorical mind. And, uh, and he, he, he says somewhere, there can be no love without delight. So if God's love is poured into our hearts, then God's delight must be poured into our hearts. And, and this then, working forward in the Romans, Romans 7, um, this then allows us by the reception of the Holy Spirit to delight in, in God, delight in loving God and loving our neighbor. Um, and, um, and, and because it is the Holy Spirit who's identified with God's love, then Augustine says the Holy Spirit must be, as he says in one of his sermons on the Psalms, God's own delight. Um, and so I found in, in Augustine this, this powerful, powerful notion of, of delight. And I, and I argue in my, in my doctorate, and then that we turned into my first book, that, that he draws all this, I think almost subconsciously, from his training in rhetoric, and, he, and, he, and especially Ciceronian rhetoric. And he could see the power of, of a, a skilled, eloquent orator, uh, the power that person had over the minds of the audience. Um, by um, by teaching them or by 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 um, uh, presenting something to them, pleasing them with that idea and with their performance, and thereby persuading them to do exactly what they wanted. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I I think you know Augustine. We talk about his whole notion of the lack of free will or what is free will and what the bondage of the will and all this. And I, I think if we don't understand his rhetorical background, his training and rhetoric and his understanding of delight, then we misunderstand what is going on there. Excellent. Thank you for that important clarification insight, Mark. And um, today I'd love to also look at some of your brilliant books. So you mentioned a few there. Um, I would also love to look at that recent one that we mentioned, The Pilgrimage of Paradoxes, uh, Backpackers' Encounters with God and Nature, and Stewards of God's Delight, Becoming Priests of the New Creation. Because uh, they speak to some similar themes and there's some overlap there, I want to ask sort of what first moved you to write those books and um, what did you hope that readers will gain from them then? Yeah, so they both arose out of very different contexts. Um, so the, the Stewards of God's Delight was never intended to be a book. I was invited uh, to lead a pre-ordination retreat um, at St. David's Cathedral. Um, we were actually meeting at uh, St. Non's retreat house right on the cliffs, uh, a hell of a place to do a, a, do a retreat. And I have to admit, I, I gave them extended periods of quiet reflection, which freed me to go walking along the cliffs. Um, but I, I did a series of addresses there that where I wanted them, I, I wanted to do three things. First, I wanted to introduce them to this whole notion of delight. And, and what does it mean for, for God to delight creation into existence? Uh, and what the, how does delight then shape how we understand who God is, why we exist, and why we were redeemed uh, and then and then ending up with then what does this tell us about ministry as as priests um, so that was the, the first thing I wanted to to introduce them to the 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 second thing is I wanted to um, I wanted the 
knock out of them uh, a what I considered one of the biggest heresies that uh, that clergy succumb to, and that is that God needs us. Um, and you often you can understand why clergy believe this because when they first show any inkling of interest in uh, becoming more engaged in their churches, uh, some priest would probably say to them, the church really needs you. Uh, and then when they're probably humming and hawing about putting their, themselves forward for discernment to ministry, someone will say to them, the church really needs you. Uh, and then uh, when they're having doubts during seminary um, and all the rest, um, someone probably says, no, you got to keep at it because the church needs you. And then lo and behold, they get to be ordained and they have this notion that God needs them in ways that God doesn't need anybody else. And, and then what happens is you end up with clergy who think their spouses have to genuflect before getting into bed with them. Um, so I, I wanted to knock out that notion that, that, that God that actually doesn't need any of us. God's perfectly capable of doing what God wants to do without any of us. Uh, we are extraneous to God's purposes, but out of his, out of his uh, love, out of his generosity, out of his delight in us sharing in his delight, he invites us um, to, to, to participate um, in what he is doing in, in the world. And it's completely gratuitous. Uh, and because it is completely gratuitous, I think as much as we can within the context we find ourselves, we shouldn't, you know, if you think you're doing this because it is your duty and God needs you to do this, it, it, it can be a bit like, you know, ministry like cleaning toilets. It's not something you really want to do, um, but you've got to. Whereas if you think it's God's inviting you out of his love and delighting you to share in what he's doing, and especially as we know the victory's already been won, um, then then that kind of frees your, your, your heart to, to really enjoy and delight in what God's allowing you to do. Um, uh, and, uh, and then the, the third thing I wanted to do was, was kind of awaken that notion in them so that they would, you know, ministering to church in Wales these days is, is not for the faint hearted. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to give them something that when they went off into the ministry might inspire them. And it seemed to resonate enough with them that uh, I thought, what the heck, I'll try and turn it into a book. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I consider it the lightest read of all my things I've written, um, but it was intended to, to be that way. And, and, uh, and it is it's also a way of inviting people to think of their ministry as, as something rooted within all of creation. So uh, that kind of leads to my latest book, The Paradoxes book. And that one grew, emerged out of a very different um, situation. And that was a very difficult time in my life that I go into in the book. Um, and I, in the midst of this really difficult time in my life, I escaped to one of the iconic mountains in Wales, Cader Idris, for an overnight uh, camp and walk on the mountain. No intention of writing a book. I just wanted to go 
backpacking uh, and be by myself by Shinkai uh, uh, and enjoy the, the scenery. And, uh, you know, it's a risky business because the old uh, folklore about Kadir Idris is those who spend the night on Kadir Idris either come down poets uh, or mad. Uh, and I've seen no improvement in my poetry. So, um, but anyways, as I left the mountain, um, and, you know, while I was there, I wouldn't have marked it out from any other overnight trek that I've done in, in Wales. But on my way back, uh, I began to reflect on the experience I had there where I began on the first day in a place just saturated with layers of history stretching what back to um, before the Bronze Age, all the way up to the, the present. And what does it mean for a little valley uh, within these mountains to have been occupied for that length of time? Um, and then later that evening in Kai up on Kadir Idris, where, you know, from our own perspective, it would seem like time has no meaning. You know, I could go back there, assuming global warming hasn't destroyed everything, I could go back in 500 years uh, and it would be exactly the same place. Or someone there 300 years ago in that landscape would have encountered and seen the same rocks situated in the same places, probably the same sheep and, and all the rest. So the sense of timelessness and history, not in contention with each other, but in a sense almost meant for each other. And then the second was, I encountered in the evening on that mountain a very deep, deep silence. Uh, uh, the kind of silence you only really encounter on, on mountains where there's a, there's a sense of magnitude to it. And yet this, this silent mountain has generated um, uh, centuries, even millennia of, of stories. Everything from legends and myths to folk tales to stories of early saints uh, um, to later stories and novels that take place over there, all the way down to us and just the silly stories that people tell about climbing to the top of Kadir Idris. So, so that was the second paradox, the silence and the words. Uh, and then the final paradox is probably the most obvious is, is first of all, the sense of wonder one encounters on that mountain, uh, especially at the top, Penagadair, um, when you can almost see Ireland in the, in the distance. Um, uh, and, uh, but yet, as I was standing on that top of that mountain, being overwhelmed by the wonder all around me, uh, it occurred to me that almost everything I could see was as common as muck, as they say up north, um, it was just the basic elements of the, of the earth uh, that I can see anywhere, but they're arranged in such a way from that from a vantage point like Penagadire, the things that are very common can fill one with a sense of absolute wonder. So that was the, the final um, paradox, the, the, the wonder and, and the commonplace. Mm. And and I I wrote all this up and initially in a in an online um, post a blog um, and the response to it just really took me by surprise and uh, and so I thought well I need to work this up into a book and it was something I nibbled at uh, I actually wrote um, 
the my my second Augustine book uh, in, while I was working on that one. That, that it was a book I wrote over probably six seven years. Um, uh, I never imagined that in my imagination uh, I would continue to occupy Cater Idris for for that length of time. So. Um, that's a, a long answer to a uh, to a short question. <laughs> That's great, thank you, Mark. And um, I think we see some of these themes coming out across your world generally. As you say, there's ideas over many years, and within your articles, even which I think are excellent. I mentioned Front Front Porch Republic and Covenant. Even there's a wonderful selection of articles there. And I was reading one recently where you described how. Uh, we have the exploiters and tinkers, even people across a supposedly diverse um, political spectrum make similar mistakes which are detrimental to the environment or the creation as we understand it as Christians. And uh, in your work, it comes across that beyond redemption, as it's kind of popularly understood, I suppose, um, the Christian story also includes the renewal of creation and you get across how important that is. Can you tell us a little bit about that and um, our role in helping to facilitate this as it's kind of led by God, as you suggest? Yeah, yeah. So I, I consider one of the greatest Christian heresies that probably doesn't get the attention that it deserves. Um, maybe because we it's no one's quite worked out how to stick an ism at the end of it but it is it is the notion that human happiness and the good life arises through the human will being set against nature we we after after the um the 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 sort of 16th and 17th centuries uh, and the whole uh, rise of the enlightenment, we, 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 we struck upon this very strange notion. And, and by we, and I, I always say this in my talks, is we, we, we have to accept the notion, the, 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 the idea that the climate crisis, the ecological crisis is the result of Christian heresy. It wasn't wasn't non-Christians who came up with all this. It was Christian Europe, Christian North America that developed a way of living that has done phenomenal damage to the planet. Uh, and people who think heresy doesn't matter, you know, look at the world around us. Um, it, so this this notion it became extremely powerful that the way we were going to achieve paradise was not by faith, it was by the human will being turned against nature uh, with the goal of exerting human mastery over nature. In essence, enslaving nature for our own good uh, or, or what we thought would be our own good. Uh, and so this led to things like this, uh, you know, initially empire uh, and, and the, the kind of modern form of global empire um, it, to slavery and the, 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 the exertion of the will of the powerful over the weak as exemplified by, by slavery. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and then the whole emergence of extractive uh, economies that we are going to we're going to treat the world not as that which in which God 
delights, but as a warehouse, storehouse, and factory for producing the kind of goods that we deem that not only that we need, but um, that uh, would make life easier for us and make us happier. Uh, and in no time at all, we have done colossal amounts of damage to, to the planet. Uh, uh, and, and this is what people, well, people like Paul Kingsnorth now refer to as the machine. Um, I've not, I've not talked to Paul about this, but the, the person uh, who I, the initial person I've come across who refers to as the machine is, is J.R. Tolkien. Uh, in one of his letters, uh, and and you know, in his if if people know the Lord of the Rings, uh, Saruman is exemplifies uh, what he has in mind: the man who who uh, tears up trees just to tear up trees and creates inhuman slaves in order to 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 conquer and and destroy. Um, and 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 this has got this could not have developed without a, a Christian foundation. But then a Christian foundation that is corrupted and and abused, uh, and that is the world in which the world that we've created, and it's a world that has benefited a small fraction of the planet um, at the cost of everybody else on on the planet, um, and we still too blithely uh, accept the notion that a few of us have the freedom to consume whatever goods and services we want in order to pursue happiness, uh, even though this requires 80% of the rest of the planet not to have that freedom. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we all, if, if we thought everybody could have that freedom, then we would have to come up with several other planets in order to, uh, to fuel that way of, of, of living. So uh, one of the things that's really um, driven my writing over the years is this notion that part of being a Christian today means trying, uh, and, I, and I don't think any of us can really do it successfully, um, but trying not to live life as consumers. Uh, and and I think uh, my first my first book, Rescuing the Church from Consumerism, I argue that con the consumerism is the dominating religion of today. That we actually live in a in a in a world of of phenomenal faith and devotion, but that faith and devotion is to consumerism that defines us in all the ways that that religions traditionally have, uh, and bind people together over. Uh, beyond national boundaries in ways that religion have done before. Uh, but if it's a religion, it's a religion that requires a colossal amount of resources to, to sustain. Uh, and so that's, that's been one of the things that has driven, if you want to find something that kind of combines my writings about the machine, my writings about nature, uh, my writings about delight and Augustine, it is it is a, a kind of stretching for me towards what does it mean to be a really alternative kingdom in the midst of a 
of a world-destroying kingdom uh, that we ourselves erected. And that's a very difficult predicament to find oneself in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, I most appreciate about your work, Mark, that uh, you go beyond those kind of slogans and critique our crude notions of progress and even words that we assume are intrinsically good. Whereas um, I think as you demonstrate and like Christopher Lash and his work as an historian demonstrated that it's not so simple, that uh, we can't be taken in by this sloganeering, which I suppose is again, the kind of meta advertising, which you seem to suggest in your work too. And uh, I want to speak about the contrast, the kingdom that you talk about distinctly Christian kind of concepts and the importance of coming back to Christian language. And I think one of the key ones that comes across in your work is the focus on love. So I want to ask you a little bit about that. And what is the Orthodox uh, Christian sort of understanding of the love of God, for example? And how does this contrast with maybe our more sentimental notions and um, the hallmark kind of yeah. idea, I suppose? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And this is where I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly Augustine, Augustinian, um, but it, it, it probably, it, it takes us back nicely to what I was saying about that great Christian heresy that we haven't really come up with a name for, and that the, the heresy being the will turned against nature. So for Augustine, love is first and foremost an act of will. So how you regard someone whether you love them or loathe them is immaterial. What is material is that you are willing what is good and beneficial for them. Uh, so for Augustine, love is primarily willing uh, in a way that leads to the love of God and the love of neighbor. Uh, and this actually gives them a, a, allows Augustine then to say, if you, as long as you're doing that or trying to do that, you've got a fair amount of freedom. Uh, you know, that there's the oft-quoted um, line from Augustine, love God and do as you will. Well, if you love God, you're only going to do what God wills. But there's also that, that wonderful line in his De Doctrina Christiana, which should give many preachers hope, where uh, Augustine says, as long as what you are preaching ends up with people loving God and loving their neighbors better than before. If you completely screw up your interpretation of scripture, you've committed no sin. You can, you can just get it completely wrong. But as long as it ends up with someone loving God and loving their neighbor, you've done, you've done well. But again, it's an act of, of will. And, I, and, and part of our, well, not, well, I mean, one of our big problems nowadays uh, that affects our notions of relationships, of our generosity towards others, about our accepting people's ideas when they're diametrically opposed to our, to us, to uh, our notion of, of sustaining relationships and everything else, is we begin with this notion of love being uh, emotion, being pathos, being what we, what we feel. Um, and it should be of all the notions of all the modern notions that Christians should never have succumbed to, it should have been that. I mean, not only do we get you know love your enemies um, 
and, and love your neighbor as yourself. But you also get you get you know lines in scripture like if you do good to those who love you, big whopping deal. <laughs> you know, even the Gentiles do that. It, it, you've got to love those who who, who treat you wrong. Uh, and the whole the whole um, image of Christ is of God loving uh, the the world that would not receive him and uh, and did not know him uh, and scorned him and loving him, loving that world to the end, even to death on the cross. There's a mashup of scripture there. Um, uh, so uh, so it is important. It is I, I love to use in services um that i'll say when when typically we'll say when we're praying for the the sick and the sorrowful to use the old prayer book language uh, we'll say something along the lines of and we remember also those whom we love or we those whom we love our friends and families and i love to add into it is it just a kind of something that jolt people into thinking is it and uh, and we pray also for those we can't stand um because that is where the rubber hits hits the road, and and if we can't as Christians will the good of those we can't stand, then we've not even begun our Christian journey. Hmm. Amen. And uh, next, if I may, Mark, I want to ask you. So before I read your recent book on paradoxes, I always really appreciated the emphasis in, on paradox in people like Chesterton. And uh, I've been thinking even recently about how this sort of applies to all sorts of domains. So even in science, we have like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and incompleteness theorem of Goodell and different things. And uh, I think like you, there's a, a YouTuber I love called Jonathan Pajot, and he talks about these paradoxes and how they make up our kind of symbolic world. Uh, so I want to ask a little bit about that. Um, as it pertains to the paradox of eternity and time. And can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to discern that kind of timelessness and what it means? And I suppose why it's so vital in an age of kind of constant busyness with the kind of acceleration of modernity and um, where we don't give time to things of ultimate concern or even what uh, Joseph Pieper calls the kind of leisure as it's properly understood. Yeah, yeah. So I, I would begin with the notion of, 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 of paradox. Um, uh, it's one of the things, I mean, one of the reasons why I kind of took the angle that I did is we, we find, I think, paradox right at the, the center of, of Christianity. Uh, just take, for example, the notion of, of Christ being truly God and, and, and truly man. Uh, that is a paradoxical, the idea of eternity entering into, uh, into the, the temporal is, is a paradox. Uh, the notion that you get in scripture, not of the temporal being uh, somehow subsumed at the end of time into the eternal, but that the eternal, the new Jerusalem comes down into our existence. Um, this is all paradoxical. This is why when people get hung up on things like the virgin birth or other things, I think, I mean, goodness, if you can accept the fact that God became man, then you ought to be able to accept anything. So, so I think paradox is right at the heart of it. Um, uh, and, I, and I end in the book I, trying to make a strong case for uh, the way scripture drives us away from opposing dualities towards understanding difference in a way that we, there's somewhere in this 
the difference that we notice, the juxtaposition that we notice, that there's actually a deep resonance between the two. Uh, and we just don't have the eyes often to see it. Um, uh, and, I, and I use, I take that line that, that Christ uses for marriage, those whom God has brought together, let no one put asunder, uh, to, to argue that central to our Christian mission is holding together, not in a kind of tolerant, we all get along kind of um, shallow way, but, but really appreciating how differences need to come together. Remain different, but different in a way where they're meant for each other rather than at war with each other. So, in terms of the timelessness uh, and 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 time, I mean that was a thing. As I as I said earlier, it really struck me sitting, puffing my pipe, drinking a nice ale, um, sitting by the the lapping waters of Shing uh, Kai in this place where there was no other human around. I could see the star field above me. Uh, and this, this just this strong sense of the eternal. Um, again, speaking more to my imagination than to my intellect. Uh, some some wisecrack when I was telling him about this chapter I wrote about uh, about timelessness and the landscape of Cadaridur said, "Oh well, it's all changed. You know, it's it once was forested and." Uh, and all those fields, enclosure, and and uh, and then of course this all used to be part of a whole other mountain range and continental drifts, and um, so you know after I smacked them, um, I, I I just pointed out that uh, you know we can't see things from that perspective. We don't we don't look at something and go oh the last six million years this is all changed. Um, it fills us with a sense of, and disposes us I think towards. Uh, appreciating, noticing, drenching ourselves in, in, in timelessness. But the other thing I noticed when I was there or realized is I only became receptive to that timelessness by letting go of time. Uh, you know, if I had been pressed for some engagement, if I had need to get down, back down the mountain before it was dark, if I'd been preoccupied with something else, my face had been in my, my, my phone, I wouldn't have noticed any of it. Um, and, and both there, but actually in my earlier work on delight, I've really come to recognize that, you know, they call it a mindfulness and attentiveness nowadays, but it's, it's basically, we have to stop and be quiet and still enough to hear God still small voice, to be open to the deeper rhythms of nature. Uh, and I'm convinced that there's all sorts of ways of perceiving time and our environment that our artificial lives prevent us from, from doing anymore. It's a bit like a blind person suddenly, the, the, the hearing and the smell being awakened because we live in such hectic, busy, uh, stimulated worlds now, we, we, we lose the capacity really to live and, and, and experience. Uh, and I think the only way I have found to, to connect with that again is, is by getting out into these timeless uh, 
landscapes, especially wildernesses and mountain landscapes, and, and just losing myself for, for days on end in those, those landscapes. Excellent. And um, I think another thing for me is attending to history and to develop, cultivating a greater kind of historical imagination and allowing that to like humble myself and think about how different things were 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, but then what's it going to be like in the future and so on. So I want to ask you a bit about that in line with the incarnation and how does the incarnation speak to those paradoxes and um, how might maybe giving greater attention to this historical and theological event, of course, then help us to live better lives today? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, and uh, I, I agree completely about history, and this is something that's that's moved me powerfully in in Wales. I mean, in the UK. I mean, in some ways, I'm a typical American, where we you know walk around with our mouths wide open. And um, uh, I, I did a uh, I did an interview uh, just recently where I, I was asked about this beam up here um, and how old is that beam. Um, <laughs> And, and, and in some ways it's worse for me because I, I, I mainly grew up in Florida uh, and the, in the county where I grew up, uh, one of the local historical markers was for the oldest schoolhouse, which dated from 1926, mm-hmm. um, which my, my grandmother snorted and said, that makes me prehistoric. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, so I've, I'm, I, I'm, I've always been sensitive to the dimension of, of time. Uh, and I think we don't appreciate enough what it means to live within historical landscapes, places that don't need to do anything. They just need to exist in their buildings and in the way their field systems and the way the landscape has been shaped to constantly remind us that we are inheritors uh, and all that we are from our the words we use to our concept about ourselves to the way we relate to each other uh, it, it, all of that is an inheritance from those who have gone before us uh, uh, and likewise one of the things i can't abide and this is all the rage nowadays understandably so <laughs> But I can't abide us sitting on our enlightened perches, uh, casting judgment on those who have gone before us. We may be entirely right about those who have gone before us, but the thing about those who have gone before us that they don't get to do is defend themselves. Uh, and so it's, it's uh, I think it's G.K. Chesterton that talks about the democracy of the dead. Uh, and and I'm I'm a little concerned, a little put off by our sitting in judgment on the great voices of the past, in a way that does not allow them to defend themselves or to speak their judgment on us. Uh, so so I think the historical is really important. And I think if you develop a sympathy for those who have gone before us, then that makes it more likely that you will live your life in such a way that those in the future will be disposed towards having some sympathy towards you, mm-hmm. i.e. that you try and live as, insofar as within your power, uh, a, a place, a world improved 
uh, or at least not any more damaged than it was when you when you got it. Now, in terms of the incarnation, I mean, one of the things I love about the the incarnation is is how completely absurd the Christian notion of it is. I mean, we've already talked about the eternal coming into the temporal. He who exists beyond all time being born as a baby at a specific moment, living through time, just as we, we do, uh, and, and dying at a specific time. And we can even give rough dates to all these things. So this is in some ways completely absurd and, and people get themselves tied up into theological knots, trying to work out how the eternal uh, could exist within, within time. But I mean, that, that's all highfalutin stuff. I think there's a, there's a, a, a simpler way where we can see the absurdity. Uh, and I've always loved the notion that when the second person of the Trinity became incarnate to redeem the world, he then spent uh, over, you know, at least half of his life growing up and then most of the rest of his life being a carpenter or a craftsman, um, doing, you know, making what, chairs and tables? I mean, the God of the universe becomes a human being and spends most of this time building chairs and tables or whatever he was, what he was doing. And then, you know, almost like, you know, a typical student when, you know, it's three days before the exam and you realize you haven't begun studying yet, you know, <laughs> three years before he's going to die, then embarks on this ministry that's going to change the world. And, you know, when you think about it that way, it's, it's, it's almost comical. Um, and yet it's a reminder. I mean, first of all, hugely important, and this, this ties into my final paradox of the commonplace, hugely important for, the, for political, social history is it has been the, the image of Christ the carpenter, not Christ the king or Christ, the, 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 the divine, Christ, the simple, humble carpenter, suddenly brought a kind of worth to the poor, to the working class that the world had never accorded it. So, I mean, that alone is an important um, uh, notion. But, but it also reminds us, we can, we can so often go, all right, Jesus was the son of God, and we kind of know who God is, uh, and, he was, and he was man. And then when we get to that man bit, it's he's sort of this generic man. Um, but actually, the Gospels go out of their way to situate him within a historical context. And that historical context is Israel, is first century Jew, um, and, and I argue, and actually I've had a couple of friends argue against me about this, that I argue that the fact that Jesus was a first century Jew is every bit as important as the fact that Jesus was the son of God. Uh, and if you give them each equal weight, then you realize that the eternal and the historical are there together in the paradox of the incarnation. And that then should define us as, as, uh, as a church, as the kingdom of God, um, but also I think then points the way, way that we are to live in this world, that we are 
as I argue, we're, we're like sacraments. We're, you know, outward and visible signs of an inward and spiritual grace. The, the, the grace, the, the, the love, the, 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 the faith that we receive, you know, all of these are, are cosmic, they're divine, they're, they're, not, they're not bound by, by space or place. And part of Jesus's ministry as the theologian Tom Wright is, loves to point out, you know, blows up these notions of, of a holy land. It's now all of creation is, is holy. And yet at the same time, place and particular people have been essential to the Christian faith. It hasn't been a kind of generic faith that's been preached. It's a faith that you can't understand unless you understand Israel and its history and it's the whole story of redemption. Uh, I, I love, I've, I've always want someone who's got a lot more biblical knowledge than I do to, to write a book on all the places that are identified in the Old Testament that are, you know, this is where Abraham was buried. This is where Isaac was buried. This is where you know, Jacob's well. And some of these stories that are so important for the story of redemption, you almost get the sense that they're a lot more like the stories I've encountered about Cater Idris, where the story is explaining why this is an important place within the landscape. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and then you get to the epistles and, you know, Paul's not writing, uh, I'm going to write a, he doesn't entitle it uh, a confusing theological reflection on um, the, the, the human will and predestination to everybody. He calls it the epistle to the Romans. Um, he doesn't, you know, it, 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 it's the Romans, it's the Corinthians, it's the Ephesians, it's the Thessalonians. These are specific people. Um, and, and, you know, in some ways, even though we can draw universal lessons from these, these epistles, you know, if you're going to uh, uh, approach them in a scholarly way, one of the things you need to learn about is the context in which they're, they're written. So this, this intersection of of eternal truths coming into contact with specific people and specific places, I think is, is hugely important. Mm, absolutely. Thank you, Mark. And um, I think your work too, as you're sort of getting across here and comes across very much in your writing, is very Catholic in a kind of small c, um, not, not just Roman Catholic for anybody who's thinking. So <laughs> you speak to the kind of importance of as you mentioned the commonplace but the kind of um the basic stuff of a uh, reality that we might take for granted a uh, kind of that earthy quality that you're kind of hinting at but then also again with the paradox the importance of that being lifted up into the distinct nature of the christian life so i think that uh, i want to ask you about that as it pertains to baptism and um, what has baptism then to do with this kind of paradox or series of paradoxes that we're talking about? And why is it so significant for the Christian life? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so, yeah. So one of the things I talk about in the book at the beginning is that, you know, a lot of people are Catholic in the, in the wider sense of it um, uh, for, for reasons of, you know, great Gothic cathedrals that draw their attention to the heaven or um, you know the ritual and everything else that all seems to to speak of heaven but i'm i'm catholic because uh it 
it seems to suggest, I, I think, that the only way we can approach God is, is, is through the stuff of creation rather than apart from it. And we see this in, in worship, be it uh, the wood of the cross, the, 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 the wheat of the bread, the, the grape of the vines, the, um, the, the incense. Uh, uh, one can go on and on and on and on. That, that, the, that, that all these things that convey meaning or even grace in the, in the, on the part of sacraments come to us through very tangible things. And I use this as a way to introduce the sacraments themselves. So we get, uh, we are incorporated by God's grace into the body of Christ. Our sins are washed away uh, of, of original sin. Uh, and we are, uh, um, we are our, our, our lives are opened up to all the other sacraments through a bit of water being poured on our heads or perhaps dunked. Um, we, we receive the body and blood of Christ, however we want to understand that, by gobbling a tiny wafer uh, and, and taking a little sip of wine, when we can take sips of wine again. Um, we are um, uh, 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 ordained um, by the, the touch of hands, we're confirmed with oil, we're, or, or uh, anointed in the, the healing of the, of the sick. All these things are such basic elements of, of creation. Uh, I think I point out somewhere in the book that they're, they're basically the, the, the ingredients for, for making a pie. Um, and, uh, and yet we, we have this strange notion uh, within at least the Catholic wing of the church that these are, these are the stuff of salvation. Um, and, and, I, and I think the sacraments as a whole should awaken us to this very different way of understanding the world in which we, we find ourselves. Um, uh, and uh, so one of the ones that I draw particular attention to in the, uh, in the book is baptism. Uh, and it's a wonderful one because, you know, water itself is so evocative. It's the uh, it's where life begins. It's what we use to slake our thirst. It's um, uh, the way we, we wash ourselves. Uh, uh, and all of these come together so powerfully in the sacraments of, of baptism itself that then launches us in some ways. <coughs> baptism is saying, all right, we're going to take the, one of the most basic substance of the planet, H2O. And this H2O is what will then set you on the road towards your salvation. Uh, and what that's going to require on your part is to recognize that by believing that this bit of water that's been splashed on your head, maybe as a squawking baby or as an adult, um, that this thing is giving you an entirely new life, a life that transcends death. If you believe that, then you're going to have to believe stuff about the world around you and the capacity of creation to stand ready to receive its creator in ways that you have no notion of before that water is poured on your, your head. 
um, and, uh, and and perhaps because I'm an absurd person myself, it's it's absurdities like that that just um, you know fill me with pleasure and go, you know, this is this is not bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's excellent. Thank you, Mark. And then um, how did the strands then come together in the Eucharist, which has been referred to as the kind of source and summit of the Christian life for some people? Did you care to speak to that part? Yeah, yeah. So, and this is this is where it connects with the, the last of my paradoxes, because we've got common bread and and common wine and let's face it the wine we have in most churches is is pretty common um uh, uh and uh they um and what is more common and ordinary to us than a meal um you know sadly the family meal is not as common as it once was but throughout human history perhaps the most common thing you could imagine, activity you could imagine, would be the family gathering around the table, partaking of bread. Um, they might not have the wine, but they, they would have the, the bread. So, so here you get just this absolutely common, common elements and a common activity uh, that then uh, is the means by which the body and blood of Christ is conveyed to us. Um, and again, within the Catholic notion of it, that, that when we receive the body and blood of Christ, when we are find ourselves within the context of the Eucharist, we have essentially stepped out of the places where we are, and we have joined, in the words of the old prayer book, the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Uh, that that we are in that moment outside of time. If we had only the eyes of faith to see it, we would see around us, not, not the grubby people in the congregation that we may or may not like, who we may or may have not be thinking Christian thoughts about at that time, especially during a hymn when one of them singing too loudly and off key. We are, we are surrounded by all the faithful who have come before us and who will come after us and who live all around us. Um, you know, a friend of mine used to tell his confirmants, you'd bring him up to communion rail and he would say to them, now when you come up here to receive the body and blood of Christ, you will be, you will be closely, closely connected you know, to use more grown-up language, you're going to be intimately united with Christ. Um, and, and you may not feel it. And in fact, you won't feel what it should feel like. Because if you really felt what that was going to be like, you would have to be dragged kicking and screaming away from the communion rail afterwards. Uh, I mean, this goes back to notions of love. I mean, if, if we really could feel that love, and then that love was something that was primarily sentimental, um, uh, uh, pathos, then my goodness, it would be, we, we would all be just piled up in the chancel. Um, nobody would want to want to leave. Um, uh, and so it is, it is, you know, this most awesome of things being conveyed to us in the simplest of, of substances. And boy, if that is the case, 
should that not change how we think of the simplest of substances of, of creation? Mm, amen. Thank you, Mark. That's fantastic. And um, now I'm ready to go on to your other books, if you're happy enough to do that this evening. Yeah, perfect. So um, on consumer culture, identity, the church and the rhetorics of the light, reading Augustine and, uh, and rescuing the church from consumerism. So I want to ask a little about those and uh, what, as you hinted at before, is this kind of cult of consumerism? And I suppose, how are we then initiated into this cult, as you describe it? And why should this concern Christians if it's not obvious already? <laughs> uh, so I, I, I should begin by asking you to see if you can, from memory, repeat the title of, of the book. <laughs> it's a book that I, is where I, it's the first time I encountered uh, uh, fighting and losing a battle with a publisher over the title of a book. Um, because the book screams that this is a deep academic work, even though it's part of a series that's not supposed to be overly academic, but uh, bent over. Um, um, so yes, um, I had written this earlier book, Rescuing the Church from Consumerism, and I had, after I'd finished my academic, after I'd finished my doctorate, I really had spent a considerable amount of time thinking about consumerism. Um, and this grew out of uh, a, a number of different things. Um, probably most important of it all, it was the experience of being a dad and, and seeing, trying to convince my son that, that going for a walk out in the countryside was a lot better than a PlayStation and losing that argument every single time um, and still losing that argument every single time. Um, so there, were, there was that. Um, uh, there was the experience of growing up in Florida, which is a completely commercialized, um, built uh, environment that, that almost seems to want to eradicate the nature and, and one's glimpses of nature around you. You know, that, that's all left to the Everglades or to the ocean and everything else. It's like I almost, it's an exaggeration, but it seems like every square inch is paved or, or a building. Um, coming to the UK uh, and, and, uh, and I was living in the Northeast of, of England and, and seeing around me, you know, beautiful countryside and the wonderful um, historical landscapes uh, uh, and um, so many things I would love to have had in America and being surrounded by people who, uh, you know, were watching, uh, I, I have to say, UK television is 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 a thing of its of its own, um, uh, and, and and seeing people just wrapped up in all these sorts of, you know, popular culture, and 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 I was living in a in a really socially deprived working class area, where people's lives seem to revolve around copious amounts of drinking, um, uh, pop, popular music, uh, and sport, and, and, and shopping. Um, uh, and it really struck me, because one of the things that's it's fairly common here in the UK, that at least in the American South is uncommon, is 
our, our, our funerals where the music is or pop songs and things like that. And to me, and I'm, I, I readily admit that this is as much about my own nature and prejudices as anything else, but, but having a pop song played at someone's funeral to me just cheapens the life that's being celebrated because, you know, this is a song, it, it may at some point when it was being written have spoken to something deep within the songwriter, but then it's gone through an entire process and mill to make sure that that song is going to do what that song is meant to do. And that is either to make money in and of itself or to be a supporting vehicle for the kind of advertising that's going to make money. So anyway, I, I, I became increasingly interested about consumerism uh, and, um, and particularly after my study of Augustine and this, my idea shaped by Augustine of delight being the enjoyment of other for its own sake without expectation. This seemed to me to be diametrically opposed to what consumerism teaches us. And that is that things must uh, stimulate us, titillate us. Uh, it is, we are in control, we make demands, we decide what our notions of happiness are, even though we don't really, we're not as much in control as we like to think we are. And this is the insight I think Augustine brought to me is that we are shaped in ways that we don't recognize. Um, that, that uh, you know, Augustine has this wonderful idea in one of his letters where he talks about um, uh, that there are, there are things that we wish delighted us that, that we just can't, we just don't delight in us, or don't, just, that just don't delight us. And then there's things that might delight us if we ever came into contact with them, but we can't, we, 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 we don't have the power to ensure that we're going to come into contact with them. So we have no control over delight. And, 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 when, we, and when things delight us, often we don't understand why. You know, the example I like to use is from an early age, history and the study of history delighted me. Now, I didn't sit down one day and go, you know, I would like to be delighted by, by history. Um, uh, you know, people don't say, oh, I'd like to be delighted by uh, playing a guitar or, or, you know, whatever it is. We just find that it does. And once we discover that it does, then we can either go, oh, no, I don't want to do that because it might be expensive or bad for us or whatever. And usually if it delights us powerfully, we're not very good at saying, oh, I don't really want to do that. Or we can go, yep, I'm going to give myself over to this delight. And this is going to be one of the great pleasures of my life. But we don't really have any control over that. And one of the things I discovered as I was researching the book is... Uh, well, two things. One, it was, a, it was one of those wonderful moments when you're writing a book and suddenly you go, aha, <laughs> it, it's all just fallen together. So Augustine's theology, Augustine was deeply influenced by that old first century BC windbag Cicero. And Cicero very famously said that uh, there are three duties of a great, of, of a great orator, and that is to um, to present 
to please uh, and to persuade. Um, and uh, and so you present you you present your case, uh, and 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 then you present the case in a way, either through your performance or by uh, through the use of uh, pathos in your oratory, uh, or uh, whatever it is, in any number of ways. But you do it in a way that's going to please the the audience. And if it really pleases the audience, then they they will want to agree with what you're saying. So you know, Cicero said, it doesn't matter if the, if what you're saying is true or false. It doesn't matter if it's it's if it's good or or evil. What matters is that you're able to present whatever it is in a way that pleases, that delights the audience, so that it will then persuade them. And if you do it really well, he, he's got this highfalutin uh, notion of oratory. He says, a great orator will take hold of people's wills and draw them at will in one direction and, and will in another direction. And he, and he probably through his own oratorical performances saw that if you really cast that spell, that oratorical spell over an audience, not only will they do what you want, but because it pleases them to do what you want, they'll experience that as freedom. They'll think they're doing it of their own free will. Um, so there was all that going on. I was reading about marketing and I was reading far too many art marketing journals and, and some of it's just chilling. Um, you know, the way of, you know, deliberate strategies for um, connecting with people's um, uh, self-identity and shaping their self-identity all in ways to enable them to make money off you mm -hmm. um, uh, and i came across this whole strategy um, that seemed to have the people arguing for it seemed to have no notion of um of um of, of cicero know anything about cicero but the whole strategy was called um that what you needed to do was to present please and persuade um, and, and it's a whole avenue of marketing. So you, you present things in a way that will, that will provide a lot of um, customer engagement and pleasure. And by doing these two things, people will then think, well, not so much of the product, though that's important, but of the brand. Uh, and, and one of the things researchers, uh, neurological research has shown is that brands work on our brains in precisely the same way that religious iconography does. Mm -hmm. So when people look at that apple symbol or uh, you know, kids look at the golden arches or whatever, you look at their brains, um, uh, what's going on, what areas the brains are firing and everything, it's it's very much the same parts of the brain that are firing when one is looking on an icon or a, 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 some other form of religious devotional art. Mm. Most disturbing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You also describe in your work, Mark, this kind of renewed tribalism. I want to ask you a little bit about that then. So suppose you've got that distressing um, individual spiritual kind of pseudo spirituality as it were and then you've got this kind of pseudo church um, with our renewed tribes so 
what is the the nature of kind of consumer tribes and how then um, does the universal universal vision of the church maybe have to deconstruct these and offer a different kind of belonging? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I I argue in that that first book, rescuing the church from consumerism, is that we 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 live again in an age where we've we've got to we've got to rediscover the notion that converting to Christianity means converting away from something. Uh, and as I said earlier, I, I'm increasingly of the view that the thing we are converting away from is seeing ourselves as consumers. As long as we see ourselves as primarily as consumers, there, we're, we're not saving this planet. Uh, we've got to think of the good life coming to us in ways that don't require mass consumption. So within this, this world of where people think of themselves as consumers, and we think of it as this very cosmopolitan global world. And in some ways it is. So one of the ideas of, of consumerism and, and the modern world is what's called McDonaldization. And McDonaldization is because of various forces at work, you, you know, you can go to, well, you take a look at my, my life, you know, I've lived in uh, 30 different places in my life. Um, and, and at every single place, uh, including uh, in various parts of the United States, in England and Wales, uh, I can buy the same things in the local shop, I can go down to the grocery store and, and get whatever I, I need at the grocery store and many of the same products there. Uh, I find people here uh, uh, consume much of the same media as they did in America. Uh, I, I always point, I, I love to point out to people that we've, we've largely given over uh, the imaginary world of our children to corporations. So the worlds that they play with as children are not worlds that are part of a traditional culture or uh, even a nation. It's not, you know, Robin Hood, or as we were talking about earlier, it's not the old Irish folklores where, where you are, folk tales. It's not even King Arthur or any of these things. It's, it's, it's Harry Potter, it's Star Wars. Um, it, it, it's these things that are, um, uh, that they're, that come to them through corporations. Um, it's been ages since I've written this, so I can't remember the precise number, but someone basically worked out there's about five or six corporations that that dominate the the the, the world of our children. Um, and probably half of those have been built, bought up by Disney since that that came up. Um, uh, and, and uh, there are interesting studies on children that that show that much of childhood play now is not it's not so much imaginary as it is mimicry they're trying to enact in their own play what they've seen on the screen um, uh, and that's a that's a really telling thing so so this has created in some ways a, a globalized society but within that globalized society people live in tribes you know, you get the obvious ones that will will appear on media. So you get you get gamers and you get goths and uh, soccer moms and all these sorts of things. These, these categories, which which can feel fairly 
shallow, but they they are ways of people um, forming community and belonging with each other. Um, but increasingly, these tribes exist within uh, what they call the digital ecosystem. Uh, and, and I think this is becoming increasingly a, a huge problem uh, in our society. Uh, you know, you can, you can see it perhaps most clearly in things like Twitter and, and Facebook, but people whose lives exist primarily uh, on, online then become subject to notions of reality that only become believable online um, and, 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 and these then warp truth in ways that couldn't happen without those sorts of things. Uh, and so now, since I've written the, that first book, and in some ways it, it's worse since I've written the, uh, the church who's, I mean, the, the book whose uh, title I can't remember, <laughs> <laughs> the list of things. Um, um, it's even worse now, and that is the, you know, the false truths, the, 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 the deliberately fabricated uh, forms of reality that are now, you know, not just shaping people in terms of their personal lives, but are actually threatening uh, the very civilizations of which we're, we're part. Um, and one of the things we don't know how to do, uh, and this is where, well, I'll get back to that in a second. One of the things we don't know how to do right now is to put the genie back in the bottle. You know, we're in this world of, uh, of, mass and quick development of new technologies without any way of weighing what the ramifications of this technological development would, would be. And I mean, who knows, 50, 30 years ago, if people had said, this is where you're going to be 30 years from now with the internet, we might have said, oh, wait a second, um, maybe we need to not do this yet um, or, or have some real safeguards in place before we, we do it. And we don't have that. So back to the church this is why i'm increasingly of the view and probably if i had a bit more moral fiber in me i would be much more of the view that that living within a christian community in an intentional way that will be a solution to the world that has been created rather than a way of sanctifying and baptizing that world is to develop strong local communities of what I call delight and love that uh, will require us to back away from our screens and from our televisions and use the time that we waste doing all that being in fellowship with each other. Uh, and the notion I really have come to connect with, uh, and it's the inspiration for the name of convivium, is Wendell Berry's notion of conviviality. I mean, conviviality, you know, we, convivial means, you know, a kind of joyful uh, spirit of to togetherness. Uh, in the Latin, it literally means living well together or living together. Uh, and it was used to describe uh, the kind of spirit you have at a really good banquet. Uh, and the spirit you need to have for the banquet to be a success. 
Uh, and Wendell Berry uses conviviality to describe a kind of human belonging and togetherness that brings about healing, both within human culture and society, but also the healing of the earth. Uh, and I think one of the things that we've, we've, we've hardly even begun to explore is how do we create as Christians communities that do that. And there are places, there's a, there's a wonderful group in um, Bristol um, called the Hazelnut Community that are doing, that's doing precisely that. And there's one in America known as the Plainsong uh, Community or something along those lines that's trying to do that as well. Um, but, but these are just drops in a, in a vast ocean of most of us who are, you know, in our daily lives, being a Christian, doesn't really make us any different from anyone else. Mm. Excellent, thank you, Mark. I want to go back to if I may to uh, Saint Augustine and uh, the section in your book on heavenly rhetoric, where you write about Augustine's eloquent God. Can you speak to that a little bit and um, why it's so significant? I suppose, especially in light of everything we've been speaking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and I was talking a little bit about this earlier. So Augustine's idea of the Holy Spirit being, uh, if, if the Holy Spirit is associated with the love of God and the outpouring of God's love into our hearts comes through our reception of the Holy Spirit, then Augustine says the, the Holy Spirit must be God's own delight. And, it's, and, he, and he loves it, in all sorts of places. He refers to the Holy Spirit as, as God's delight. <laughs> Well, if he's God's delight, you can in a way, and you don't want to push this too far, else you get into Trinitarian heresies. Um, but in a in a way, if you think of Christ being the wisdom of God and the truth of God, then um, then the Holy Spirit can be seen as the eloquence of God, and and operating behind this is is again Cicero. So Cicero, when he was a overly precocious teenager, wrote a work um, called De Invenzioni, uh, and if the older Cicero had known that this thing he had written as a teenager was going to be his most influential piece of work, he would have been horrified, and it would have done him good. Um, but De Invenzioni begins with this myth uh, that he creates, and in this myth, uh, he first asks a question. He says, which is, uh, which is more harmful, truth without eloquence or eloquence without truth? Uh, he takes as read as they did in the ancient world that, that you needed both. Um, so he says, all right, what about truth without eloquence? Well, he said, well, truth without eloquence is, is pretty useless because unless you're eloquent, people aren't gonna listen to the truth. And that's bad, but much worse than that is eloquence without truth, because then people will be persuaded to do all sorts of things that are, are terrible. So he then creates this whole myth in which people are initially operating little better than savages um, until there is this great orator, this man in whom truth and eloquence uh, uh, coincide. 
and he's able to draw, he's able to gather a scattered savage humanity together through his eloquence and make them receptive to the truth he has to teach them uh, through that eloquence so that they then can form into a civilization. And the same orators who are both wise and eloquence, eloquent are not only the creators of civilizations of civilization, they are the sustainers of civilization. Um, because what civilization does is it keeps producing people who uh, are uh, like demagogues, who are eloquent, but their eloquence leads the Republic towards its own ruin. It leads civilization to its own ruin. So you need wise and eloquent orators to do battle with them to preserve uh, the, 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 to preserve civilization. So this informs Augustine's notion, I argue, of, of God. So you can think of the devil as uh, the, 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 the demagogues. There, he's the one who's using eloquence, he's using a worldly delight to sway people towards committing things that are destructive to themselves. So that we are effectively pleased, we are delighted in the road that leaves, leads to, to hell. Um, and there's this wonderful line, and I think it's De Trinitate or paragraph where he's describing what this whole thing is like, where we're delighted by sin and then it's, um, uh, we, we want more of it and that leads us further into bondage and, and, and as, we're, as we're heading it further into this bondage of sin, it's almost like our humanity is unraveling. Uh, and when you're reading this, you, you, you get to the point in Augustine's writing where you're expecting him to suddenly say, precious, because <laughs> um, it is, it's, it's so Gollum, it's, it's like a description of Gollum. I mean, if I discovered somewhere that Tolkien, you know, that was the inspiration for Gollum, I would completely believe it. So we don't have it within ourselves because of the power delight has over us to resist that in Augustine's view. So what we need is someone wiser and more eloquent than the devil to, um, to, to, to persuade us towards our salvation. Uh, and so this is where in Augustine, God becomes Cicero's ideal orator in whom there is perfect wisdom and perfect eloquence. Uh, and he turns that eloquent wisdom towards us uh, so that he can persuade us through his love, not through coercion or anything like that, but through his love, persuades us to, to onto the path of righteousness, on the, on the path that leads to, to him and to uh, salvation. Uh, and so that makes him uh, the, uh, an eloquent God. And it's a wonderful notion to think of God as, as this, this eloquent person who, by his own sweetness and delight, woos us almost towards, um, towards salvation. Mm, excellent. Thank you, Mark. And then um, just to close up our little discussion on this particular uh, book, this particular work, especially on rhetoric, then I think parallel to or as part of uh, the traditional Christian understanding of deification, it seems that we are to become God's orators, as you suggest. 
So I want to ask you a little bit about what that involves and um, why this is a most worthy challenge for our time and uh, call for us today. Yeah, it's a great question because in my my book on um, uh, uh, consumer culture, identity, the church and rhetorics of delight, got it. Um, uh, one of the things people have complained about is it's ended, um, where uh, I, I say, uh, I probably in a slightly too smart ass of a way, uh, I'm not going to tell you how to do this because basically that would be given, you know, coming up with 10 easy ways for that you can be this, this thing. Uh, and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I also pointed out to people that I had a 50,000 word limit and, and I was right up against that, that word limit. So uh, that, that satisfies nobody. So I argue there that we need to become places, our churches need to become places where wisdom and eloquence coincide, where, where God's eloquent wisdom can be in, encountered. Um, and I still hold that there is no, there, 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 there's not sort of a cookie cutter uh, way of going about this. But I think they, they need to be communities in which there is serious, uh, serious is probably the wrong word there, but, but, but prolonged and challenging teaching but within communities that in whatever way they can manage, try to develop a life in which people can delight in each other. They can recognize and promote what they find that is truly delightful around them, uh, where they can learn to enjoy each other and God's creation for its own sake, uh, and conversely, are willing to challenge those things that diminish delight, diminish what God has made delightful in the, the world. Part of this will be a critical self-awareness of the things that we may delight in that to us may seem harmless, but require great harm to be done elsewhere. And this is not going to be a, a, a simple or straightforward task, partly because if right now we were to stop doing all the things that are causing harm everywhere else, our whole Western world would collapse. And most of us are probably not quite ready for that, maybe Paul Kingsnorth, who you were just talking to, but the rest of us probably aren't. Um, so, um, it, but but it is within these kind of communities, and and I should preface this by saying this is not something we can do through human will. This this all has to be rooted in in faith and the reception of God's grace and the openness to be filled with that grace and it needs to be rooted in worship and uh, I would say the, the reception of the sacraments, all these things. But I think it then begins to move us towards a conception of the world of, of the church as a place to, to plug my convivium project where people are directed towards thinking hard about and even experimenting with how to live well with God, with creation, and, and with each other. 
Uh, and, and I think those three North Stars, if we can have three North Stars, um, it's it not a bad way of thinking about how to revitalize the, the, the church uh, and to set our priorities within the church. Wonderful, thank you, Mark. And your your works are most encouraging in that respect. And um, I'm glad you are incar incarnating those patterns, as you mentioned, convivium. I want to ask you ne next, just uh, is there anything else that you're working on presently or that you still feel the passion to get involved with that you'd like to tell us about now? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, <laughs> so I, I've, I've made the uh, colossal error of um, coming up with a bright idea that I didn't quite think through. And that bright idea was I would get scholars from around the world to write <coughs> theological reflections on the convivium principles. There's like nine, I think it's nine principles that uh, undergird the whole convivium vision. And I thought, what I'll do is I'll get two scholars from each, one that kind of gives a uh, uh, a first world perspective and one that will give um, uh, a wider global uh, perspective, people giving perspectives from different contexts within these, uh, 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 on these principles. And it only occurred to me far too late that herding 16, it must be eight principles because herding 16 scholars towards deadlines is, is makes herding cats look like you know, it's the simplest thing in the world. <laughs> so uh, I, I say this um, with a, a certain degree of, um, uh, of um, uh, gritted teeth because I've only just today written the publisher saying, you know, that second deadline we came up with, I, I think we're going to have to push it back about six months. So uh, in theory, that is my next project. I'm hoping in the autumn to... Um, to, to start working on um, uh, a book that, that may not even be necessarily theological, but it's going to be exploring a bit more the notions of place and belonging that I do in, um, uh, in the pilgrimage of paradoxes. Um, but in a way that maybe some non-Christians non might be more receptive to, that that's arisen out of a few talks that I've done recently. For the time being, uh, as with everybody else in the world, just trying to rebuild after the pandemic is, is, is not allowing for as much writing as I've done in the, in the past, which may please all sorts of people. Mm. <laughs> not me anyway, <laughs> I must say. And um, then where can viewers or listeners find out about uh, some of those projects in your work then, Mark? Um, well, uh, the, um, one of the things people, one of the best places for people to go is to the website for Convivium, www.convivium-brecken.com. <laughs> and there they can also find a link to one of the exciting things we have coming up, which is a, a big conference this summer uh, that's entitled Inhabiting Memories and Landscapes, a cross-disciplinary engagement with Wendell Berry, where we've got scholars from all over the UK, um, Ireland, and North America coming. Um, uh, and the uh, keynote speaker for that's going to be Norman Wiersbe, which should be really, really good. Um, uh, that, that's probably the best place for people to go to find out anything uh, about me. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today, Mark. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. No, it's been good fun. God bless and, you. Uh, and good to meet you, Mark. I'm going there. Nobody gets on me. Ooh, I'm going there.